I guess we didn't do a countdown tonight, which is okay. Uh, I'm absolutely fine with that. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank everybody for tuning in to another episode of the In the Black podcast. You see, it's just me tonight. It's just me. O is being O, crush is being crush, but I am honored to have a very special guest with us tonight. We are going to have an incredibly dope, dope conversation. But before I introduce our guests, I want to do some housekeeping. Uh, Listen, I thank everybody for coming through and taking a listen to the In the Black podcast. I thank you for all the supporters and everybody who has been so incredibly kind with your comments and your financial donations. I mean, we can't be remiss because we can't do these types of things without you. So. Why don't you take a moment, head on over to the in the black podcast.com, click in the right hand corner, become a member of the family. And on that page, you have the opportunity to <laughs> buy mugs, t-shirts, uh, all different types of things, or you can just give money. Uh, <laughs> there is a cash app option. There is a, there's every possible option you can think of donating cash. So please feel free to give, uh, and thank everybody for doing it but since i have such a dope guest i don't want to spend a whole lot of time with the preliminaries uh my guest tonight is one of my friends who is an incredible person i don't say that just because she's here i say it in an authentic manner uh I'm excited about the conversation that we're going to have tonight. I have with us tonight, ladies and gentlemen, Jen Lopez, Executive Director of the Friends Association. Uh, and she's going to tell you guys what she does at Friends and all those things before we jump into the meat of the conversation. So, Jen, I thank you for showing up. I thank you for being here. And I'm look, I'm so excited about this conversation. So tell us what you do at Friends, Jen. Thanks, Elgin. I'm incredibly honored to be here and incredibly honored to be among your friends, which aren't many. And I, I want to say this, first of all, your whole like sales pitch, um, you know, we may need to like shift you over at Friends to do some development and fundraising oh. for us. <laughs> so get ready. Oh, wow. <laughs> Why not? And, and I also want to say, like, I'm really, I like, I have a little tickle being called dope. Because it's, ah! it's, <laughs> it is way past my bedtime. <laughs> so I feel really cool. <laughs> and that was one of the things that when I asked you, I was like, Jen, it's it's at 8.30. And your response, a.m.? No, Jen, it's, 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 it's p.m. <laughs> yeah. I but I'm here, young at heart. Yes. yes. Uh, so thanks. I uh, yeah, I've been the executive director at Friends Association for the past two years. You know, Elgin, as you know, I left a, you know, a, an odd career in the criminal justice system after 30 years um, to really look at a way to have an impact in the community and work and, and and we'll dive into this at some point i'm sure work within oh, a system that is really um 
investing in community and not a system investing in itself. You know, that's still to be determined in this housing system. But at Friends, um, it were an almost 200 year old uh, organization next year, 2022 will celebrate 200 years founded in the city of Philadelphia by abolitionist Quaker women. And I was, as I was mm. doing research, um, it wasn't just, you know, the white saviorism of Quaker abolitionists saying, you know, we want to save you. They partnered with the African-American community yeah. in Philadelphia, and it was really a collaborative uh, initiative to create an orphanage for children who had lost their parents, many who had been enslaved and uh, ran that way for almost 100 years and then moved to Cheney, became a girl's home, eventually landed in Westchester. But really always, you know, that core of social justice, you know, mm -hmm. that the Quakers who also have their shadow side, right? Oh, yeah. um, focused on and really looking at what the community needed and responding to that need rather than driving you know, the solutions. So about uh, in the early 80s, we began shifting focus from um, having a girl's home to foster care and adoption. Mm -hmm. And then as a result of Reaganomics and a lot of things <laughs> that were going on in society, we, you know, saw families becoming yeah. unhoused and provided emergency shelter to one family at a special request. And that really began the start of providing emergency shelter for families in our community and then decided to shift focus completely um, about 10, 15 years ago and really focus in on solutions to family mm. homelessness. So you know that every year, almost 500 families in the wealthiest county in Pennsylvania and really southeastern seaboard experience the trauma of, of becoming unhoused. And so we have a really bold vision for change at Friends. We believe in the power of our community and our neighbors coming together to create a more equitable community uh, for everyone. Mm -hmm. uh, so we have innovative programs that are focused in four key areas. We uh, look to prevent homelessness, provide mm -hmm. emergency shelter, partnering with families to support their stability and then promoting systemic change. Um, so we have a bunch of programs that kind of hit all of those key areas, a lot of new initiatives over the last year, a lot of growth happening um, and a lot of, you know, community leaders coming together to, to, to <laughs> you know, enact and execute this bold vision for change that we have. Yeah. Now, one of the things I, I know is you've made a transition. You've really been vocal about transitioning from a charity model mm -hmm. uh, because that's something that we see typically with nonprofits. But it's another key thing that I know that you're working on. And that's the trauma informed aspect for the listeners who may not be familiar with what trauma informed is. Can you share a little bit about what that is and how it looks yeah and and you know it's it's language put behind something that we all kind of intrinsically and mm -hmm, organically mm -hmm. know um, but being trauma-informed means that we understand what trauma is mm -hmm. how uh, prevalent is it is in in the people that we're serving the people that we're encountering and that doesn't just mean our neighbors as we call them mm. uh, that we're serving it means each other it means mm -hmm 
uh, you know, anybody walking through our door, our donors, our, you know, whoever we're dealing with. So we understand what trauma is. We understand that it's prevalent and that uh, especially people that have been marginalized and impacted by systems are, are typically going to have high rates of trauma. And then we understand that that sometimes impacts behavior. It mm. impacts a person's ability to engage in services. Mm. It impacts every area of someone's life. You know, we like to think of trauma, you know, from the head up, but it really is our brains, our bodies. There's a there's a total impact. And then we take that knowledge and understanding and we put it to use in how we interact, how we respond to behaviors, how we design our policies and our programs. Um, when I walked into Friends, I, you know, I was a little shocked, like all good nonprofits, we collect a lot of stuff. You know, there was, it was really cluttered and messy yeah, and yeah, like, yeah. I get it. It's no judgment on anyone. Everybody's yeah. wearing a lot of different hats. There's not enough time in the day, yeah. but there's research out there that and as you know elgin we're we're doing a big renovation project on our emergency shelter using trauma-informed design and architecture mm. our physical environment impacts our brain and our functioning so the first thing we did is we spent like six months cleaning up and decluttering you know looking at the colors that we were using we we can have a neighbor who is in the crisis of being unhoused come into a, a, a building and an office and a space that's cluttered and chaotic because that's just keeping them in fight or flight and in survival. So we really try to settle down the brain. Uh, and then we do that in our interventions as well. Mm -hmm. So we look at behaviors, you know, we sometimes we're challenged, behaviors are challenging sometimes and, and we get triggered, but we have that core understanding of, of that. And then we shift our responses and it becomes teachable moments because sometimes people um, who have experienced trauma have, um, you know, some, some uh, defensive aggression, we call yeah, it, where yeah, it's like, they're just yeah. waiting. Like, I'm, I'm yeah. going to come at you before you come at me. I'm, I'm mm -hmm. ready. And if, if we're responding to that with more aggression or do what, do what I told you, or mm -hmm. you're not listening, then we're just going to get more of that back. And so when we can kind of bring that down and understand, give the person the space, you know, to kind of feel it and offer respect offer offer safety to them offer choice we create a teachable moment you know they walk it actually creates new neuro pathways in the brain when we do yeah, that yeah, so yeah. we keep walking down that same path same path same path it's going to create a new pathway in the brain to respond for the for the person to respond in a different way the next time around and so I that's been that's, critical i think that's the part that people don't understand when it comes to trauma trauma in and addiction are very similar on the way that they change the makeup of the brain. Mm -hmm. I think we sometimes just view trauma as things that happened, mm -hmm. uh, you know, things that took place to us. We don't understand the effects of what that has done to us after that particular thing has happened. So that's fascinating. So 
before you were an executive director, you had another job that I find is way more interesting than what you do now. So tell us a little bit about that gig, because that was I, Yeah, so I was, I retired as the deputy chief of probation and parole in Chester County, you know, small little suburb of Philadelphia. And you kind of know my story. I'm fluent in Spanish, I'm bilingual, had no background in criminal justice uh, whatsoever. What's interesting, I don't know if you knew this, I started out in nonprofit. So I, I did a little gig oh, wow. right out of college doing immigration work where it was an amnesty time. So I, I uh -huh. came and worked in the mushroom farm. So I went, wow. yeah, worked in the mushroom farm contracted uh, tuberculosis doing that work, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I was doing legalization paperwork um, uh -huh. for mostly men at that time working in the mushroom industry during amnesty and then landed at a housing nonprofit um, for about a year after, you know, in between in Southern Chester County. And then they needed, I, you know, had a baby and needed some stability that nonprofit at the time didn't really offer and went to work in county government and um, the probation department needed a bilingual probation officer. And I was like, you know, what the heck, you know, let me, let me see what this is about. And uh, started, I was fortunate and I lose that, use that word loosely. It was more of a social work um a social work uh, aspect in in Chester County. So, you know, mm -hmm. it's on the continuum of law enforcement to social work. Some departments are totally law enforcement. We were much more social work. So I kind of found my fit. I was like the only Spanish speaking person in the whole county at the time. So I was always running around doing different things. So people kind of left me alone and yeah. really didn't know what was going on. So I really just embraced uh, more of a social work way of interacting with justice involved people and then really found you know the diversionary work like figuring mm. out why are people coming into the system how can we divert them and get them out and and not entrenched in the system so yeah. st we started um the second drug court in the commonwealth which was you know, designed to not enmesh people, get them treatment, get them out of the system. And it kind of grew from there um, into mental health court, a veterans court. And then about 10 years before I left, um, we really started seeing the increase in the number of women being incarcerated and in community corrections disproportionately. It's something like 800% rate, um, you know, in the last 30 years and looking at how could we do things differently. And it was through that work that um, I healed my own trauma, my own childhood mm. trauma, and really began also to see, you know, I always, I remember sitting in court and I always used to think there, but for the grace of God, go me, my yeah. brothers, my sister, yeah. like this could just as easily be me. Um, and, and I know because of my whiteness and my privilege, um, and I grew up in a poor family with, you know, a mother with mental illness, a dad with alcohol issues and domestic violence. Um, and yet we had the privilege, like my dad never went to jail. They always let him sleep yeah. it off. Yeah. Um, we never went into foster care, you know, those things because my I'm white did not happen. And I saw, I was interacting with people in the justice system 
you know, who had the same circumstances, but they were black or they were brown. And I could see, you know, I was able to get into college, you know, and, and do things that weren't afforded to other people. Um, and so like it, this just little nag started hitting me and I'm working with these women and we're doing trauma work. And I really, you know, thought this isn't, this work is not aligning with my core beliefs and value. Like mm. we're putting people ages who are hurting you know even you know the drug addiction i really believe most of that stems from a traumatic event or uh, or tra traumatic stress you mm -hmm. know not just one event it could be you know multiple, multiple. yeah mm -hmm. and so it was like we're, what are we doing this is this is insanity this is insanity and i was you know towards the end i was like i, I think about i might get fired if i if i stay here because i really can't stand by and continue um, to watch the damage we're doing to families, to communities. Um, and but there, you know, there was this weight also because I was doing diversionary programs and doing things to keep people out. But you know, in the end, you know, I couldn't continue to support incarcerating more people. Mm. So, you know, kind of jumped ship and here I am. Here you are. So I, I, I'm telling you, I, I love that story uh, because it shows it shows your understanding of what people are going through. It shows your willingness to not only change the system, but knowing that you are a part of what is taking place in the system. And for the system to change, you ultimately have to change yourself and that was for you to change careers and i'm thankful for it i, I think it's great uh when i listen to you talk i, I hear words like unhoused mm -hmm. housing instability instead of the typical stereotypical terms that we hear when it comes to housing being homeless is one of them uh that always tends to stick out what why do you use unhoused instead of homeless um and i'm going to shoot for the stars with a bigger question i think most of us know that homelessness or being unhoused is an issue give me your dream your wish on how you can see being unhoused solved Let's let's do a magic wand. Let's go for this because I think there's tend, when we tend to think about solutions, I think one of the things that people who work in our field tend to lose early on is their imagination. Mm -hmm. We tend to lose our ability to dream of solutions, and we kind of get stagnant and stuck in the rut of just working within the system, working in the system. We don't tend to think outside the box anymore. So for you. Outside of the box, dream scenario, ending homelessness. What do you think? So I think that it's doable, right? I think that first of all, we as a community and Emily on our staff always says this, we have to decide as a community that it's not okay. It's not okay mm. for any of us to stand by and know that our neighbors people on our community are unhoused or unstably housed. So it is the advocacy piece, first of all, and educating. Um, this is not a, 
you know, a bootstrap, pick yourself up, you can mm. solve this yourself. This is systemic, it's institutionalized. You know, I hinted at it early, at, earlier, I left the criminal justice system, you know, because I'm like, oh, that system, it's no secret. I think it needs to be abolished. I think we need to replace it with something mm. new. I don't think it can be reformed. Mm. Um, and then I came here and I'm like, gosh, this housing is a system too. <laughs> I don't know how much, I mean, we're not incarcerating people, but we're oppressing people. You yeah. know, we're keeping people, we're keeping the status quo within mm -hmm. the, cert, the, 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 you know, the systems that we have. Like, here's the magical magic wand answer. The, yeah. the answer to people being unhoused is housing, and affordable housing. Like yeah. we, that, that's it. You know, yeah. it's easy. Um, so, you know, my dream would be meeting people where they're at. Um, we would love to do a community land trust mm. with mixed housing, um, mm. because, you know, we certainly know that there are people that, um, have serious mental health issues and conditions that, that are not going to fit into this box of housing that works. So we need to find something that's going to work for them to keep them safe. Um, to keep them well. And so that may look different than what it looks for, like for a family. We would love to be able to have rental properties. Uh, we would love to be able to have home ownership opportunities. So where we would, you know, possibly own the land, um, but the housing on it is, is in perpetuity affordable, A, and then B, of mixed use for low and moderate income families. Um, we've got to stop building shelters. We've got to stop Ooh. investing in emergency <laughs> shelter. I know that's not popular. <laughs> um, we've got to invest in housing, social housing. We've got to improve the public housing that we have. It's, you know, over the lat there hasn't been an increase in in uh in in uh the funding for housing in decades so you know you can if you if you look at the history of housing like it's no surprise where we are and and what's happened that there are this many people unhoused um you know you can you can just see the evolution of it over time um so, you know, I think reparations are uh -oh. at hand. So, you know, when we look at, you know, you know that I did a little bit of community organizing with you and, you know, believe in the homes guarantee through people's action. But, you know, people of color have, you know, have been discriminated against, have suffered at the hands of our government, quite honestly, and policy and legislation you know, redlining. I was reading some things like crazy and I can't remember where I read it, where there was like regulations like hidden deep to build highways to separate yes. white neighborhoods from black neighborhoods. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. yeah, we got, we got to repair that. So, yeah. yeah. I think there was a, a thing that I heard some time ago where if you look by every major city that has a predominantly black community there's a major freeway or highway very close by and it was mm -hmm. done intentionally and when i read it i was thinking about the places that i've been and i'm like yeah. oh that's awful uh but same same yeah. i thought the same thing when i read that i was like wait yeah 
Um, back to your other question um, about the unhoused. So we we also believe in people first language. So I think it kind of stems from there with people are not their conditions, right? Mm -hmm. They're people first. So it really grew in the disability community um, with, you know, people with conditions. So they're, you know, you, someone is not a schizophrenic, they're a person with schizophrenia. So um, we kind of shifted from um, a homeless person to a person experiencing homelessness. And, you know, I was thinking about it and really I have two grown kids who are, you know, activists and, and they really enlighten me a lot. My daughter and I were having this conversation and we were talking about how, when we say even experiencing homelessness, like I'm experiencing a weekend at the spa, <laughs> you know, or somehow like their choice to experience it, it puts, it puts the onus on them somehow. And it's like, no, we are unhousing our neighbors. We as a community are allowing people to be unhoused. It is not their experience. It, it is us that is making this happen. So um, we're starting to shift our language and, and educate around that as well. Yeah, that's important. Uh, that people first thought process is so important because again, when you're working in these environments, the last thing you want to have is some sort of hierarchy yeah. uh, where people, your neighbors, our neighbors come in and they see and they feel like they're at the bottom, they gotta climb. So the people first thing works. The pandemic, COVID-19, uh, last March, uh, it's almost a year that we've been in our new normal. Uh, one of the things that that's not talked about enough is evictions, unhoused, uh, folks not being able to pay their rent, their mortgages, all those things. So share some of your, your the things that you've seen in the past year, some of the things that have really stuck out to you. Um, just kind of want to give a, a good overview of where you pre COVID-19 and COVID-19. And then let's talk about the future with our new normal, as far as housing, evictions, landlords, tenants, all those. And we'll discuss it back and forth, you and I. What do okay. you think? So pre-pandemic, um, we were having an eviction crisis. Um, and I mean, it's, it's so complicated and complex. Um, you know, you know, the whole system of private landlords and, you know, it's, it's just complex. And I think key at, in the eviction process is, um, and, and in other processes and systems as well, is, is the right to counsel, the, the right to have a lawyer or, a, you know, legal counsel to help you understand what's happening. And so it was kind of floating in the back of my brain. I saw some models for eviction court, but, you know, it was back burner, back burner. We're dealing with what's happening today. And really the pandemic gave us kind of the kick in the pants that we needed to say we need to do something. So, you know, April, May, I'm in meetings and we're all saying there's going to be a wave of evictions. People aren't paying rent. They can't pay their rent. You know, stimulus money hadn't gone out yet. People weren't getting their unemployment. So, you know, you're not paying, you're out of work completely. There's no money coming in. And, um, you know, week after week, we're just talking about it, but we're not doing anything. So in, in late April, early May, we convened a group 
um, to talk about it. And we included uh, local judges and some political, you know, um, elected officials, some landlords, uh, a, a local and national housing expert. And you know, we looked at the data and, mm. you know, we looked at how many evictions there were in 2019, how many filings. Uh, and then we met with Philadelphia County, we met with Montgomery County and their programs and decided, you know what, we're going to do it. You know, this small little agency, we're going to, we're going to step up because if not now, when, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we launched in September, the county's first eviction court. So we provide a lawyer, we provide a social worker and we provide money, quite frankly, to pay off back rents um it it's what hard like? what does that look like say so i'm a tenant and my landlord is being a pain in the behind he knows i just got laid off because of COVID. i don't have money to pay my rent but i was always up to date beforehand but COVID kind of struck through now he's trying to evict me uh -huh. i don't have the money nor do am i aware of my rights in this situation i'm scrambling so what does eviction court do for someone in that particular situation? So the court did a, you know, made a couple of concessions for us. They listed all their landlord tenant matters in one day. They send out a notice of our program with the hearing date. So mm. our hope is that a tenant will contact us in advance and we can start the process. Ava King, who's our coordinator, she's like knocking Shout at doors at nine o'clock yeah. at night. She gets the list and going out. So we we do an we do a, a you know a little screening, short, brief, just to qualify someone. We look at the the rental amount. We look at the we try to get a copy of the lease. We get the complaint. We see what's going on. We kind of prepare it and then we hand it off to our lawyer. And um, the lawyer meets with the tenant and they they talk about any issues that are going on. I will tell you this. Um, future thinking, you know, we need to look at housing conditions, we need to, to look at, you know, bigger issues. But right now, like we're in survival, triage, yep. keeping people yep. house mode. So we're just like, what do you owe? Do you want to stay there? What else is going on? And then the lawyer talks to the landlord, or the landlord's counsel, sometimes it's a property manager, and we come up with an agreement. And usually it's you know, get rid of the late fees, get rid of the filing fees, reduce the back rent, and we'll pay it off. Um, and then we provide a check and we pay off the back rent. We partner, you know, we tried to use the CARES Act funding last sure. last year um, and try to maximize the money that we have. Uh, and then we look at any other needs that the family or the individual has. So if it, you know, if they have additional needs that aren't being met, we're going to refer out or do what we can. I will say our experience has been this. Uh, a lot of people don't show up at all because they don't understand and they're get, they get evicted. It's like judgment by default. Yeah. Um, we're tracking it and, and they go because they don't understand their rights. Sometimes they don't understand, you know, they don't have someone negotiating. There's not simple language. Honestly, I have to reread it every other week sure. to be clear in my mind. Um, how it works because the language that it isn't even called, it's called an order of possession, not an eviction. Not like the word eviction is really not in any of the legal documents. So um, I, I would say probably 95% of the landlords are saying, I don't want to evict, but I don't know what else to do. 
I can't pay my mortgage. I'm behind. I have to get some money. We've had a few, like we had one guy really early on, lived in the same place for like 10 years, got got laid off, talked to his landlord. But the number one thing we say is talk to your mm -hmm. landlord, communicate, communicate, yeah. communicate. And, and that's what the landlords want. This landlord was, he was like a flipper, buying houses, flipping, flip, flip, flip. <laughs> so he, this this guy was behind, had gone back to work, right? Mm -hmm. Was on a payment plan and he still proceeded with the eviction. So we were like, no, like, well, we paid a little, I think we, I don't even think we caught him up. We just did an agreement. We did a, an order agreeing and the judge dismissed it. And this guy's staying in his housing. But, you know, the sad part is that filings on this guy's record, even though yeah. he didn't get evicted, it stays there. And that's public what effect, record. What effect does that have? That's huge. So there's all kinds of research showing that um, having it, if, you know, the actual eviction is a, a is a, a separate thing, but I don't think people delve deep enough into uh, to understand whether it's just a judgment and they got evicted or they didn't get evicted. It um, impacts your credit. It, it you know, landlords can look at that and not they're not going to tell you they're not renting to you because of that. I mean, you're reading Dr. Desmond's book, Evicted, and you yeah. know, you you see the landlords in there saying. I don't check it, but they do. So, and so the research shows that um, when someone has an eviction, they're forced to live in substandard housing um, as a result of that, because it, it limits their choices on housing after that. So, so we're um, not even talking about the actual eviction. We're talking about the filing for eviction also stays on that record, right? Yeah. Yep. And that's, that is one thing, um, future thinking in our advocacy, we want to, um, we are going to push to get that expunged. So the filing should be expunged. I mean, I, hopefully down the line, we can get evictions expunged after a certain uh, period of time. But if a judgment has been satisfied and didn't end in an eviction, there's no reason that can't be expunged off someone's record. Jeez. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's literally the worst possible scenario particularly in the midst of a pandemic. So yep. so are evictions even taking place yep. in the midst of a pandemic? They are. Uh, Elgin, I was in Coatesville the week before Christmas, meeting with the judges, because we opened there in January and observing. Ava and I went just to have a meeting and you know they invited us to, to watch. And you know we weren't even official and we took on 10 clients time families that day, but a landlord approached me. Um, it was, it was the Tuesday before, before Christmas. So he's in court with one tenant and we're working out a deal and he approaches me and he said, Hey, I'm doing a walkout at three o'clock today of a single mom and her child in the Southern end of the County. And I don't really want to do it. Can you do anything? And I'm like, dude, it is like days away from Christmas. Christmas. He's a property manager. So, you know, not, not his okay. place. Okay. So we, it was noon at that point. So we hustled and, and he agreed to take half of what she owed and we paid it off. And she was able to, she was out. She'd gone to Reading 
because she thought she, three o'clock she had to be out. All her belongings were still there. She was like, she's crying, like, how am I going to get my belongings? I don't know what I'm going to do. Like the trauma of that for her little boy. Oh, you know, we we try to hide those things for our kids, but they're smart. They That's pick up on it, and sure. you know, having to, you know, move to Reading temporarily and. Double up with during Christmas. Yeah. 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 So evictions are, we had um, early on in September, we actually had an illegal eviction. We had someone show up at the office um, who slept in his car the night before and showed us a notice that was put on his door. The landlord hadn't even filed the eviction. So it was not illegal. Yeah. Just posted something and this guy, he didn't know, right? You're not a lawyer. You don't know. You get this official looking paper that says you have to be out. So we actually got an attorney and litigated that case. But I, I thought them. there was a moratorium, though. I thought there was. That was September. So it was there were a few days between the federal mor the Pennsylvania moratorium and the CDC. And I actually saw a chart this week of like the the for the three, I think it was three days where there was like a lapse yeah. of the yep. moratorium and like the eviction filings skyrocketed. Yeah. So the moment that the moratorium ended for that yep. brief time, the landlords mm -hmm. decided to evict the people. File, file. And you can still be, so the CDC moratorium, there are loopholes, right? So yeah, you have yeah. to, you have to understand it. You have to file an affidavit you it had and you can still be evicted for undesirable tenant so if you know for not non-payment of rent and we've we have seen that some landlords are kind of catching on to that so when they're filing in addition to non-payment of rent they're charging other things like well they're partying or they're you know it's an undesirable tenant and that's kind of a loophole through that moratorium and an undesirable tenant that sounds like that's incredibly subjective. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. you know, playing music at 10 o'clock in the morning might yeah. be something that makes the landlord yeah. uncomfortable. So subjective. Yeah. There's no true definition of what that is. How does that, I, I, the whole thing just blows my mind. But yeah. I try to be, I try to be sensitive or, well, I'm not necessarily sensitive, cognitive of the landlord's plight also. Mm hmm because not all landlords are scumbags. A lot of right. them are. But some of them are genuinely people who are just trying to make a living also. And they're suffering the same way as the tenants are. So so what can what is being happening or taking place to help landlords out in these type of situations? And that's really been our experience. Like I would say nine out of 10 landlords are just really trying to make a living, really truly trying to work with people, bending over backwards, yeah. you know, stressed, traumatized, you know, experiencing all the same things uh, on, on some levels. Um, you know, there's not, it's, we, I, once again, we've created this complicated system to access the money. So I don't know if you, there was an article in the Inquirer, I think last week about last the week. debacle with yeah. the, you know, the rent relief last time around, because it was like, they capped it at $750 for rent. You had to forgive the rest. And like, where are you renting anything for $750 in this Nowhere. area? Mm -hmm. So they weren't, a, and then the application was cumbersome, the uh, supporting documentation. So 
Uh, this time around, we're, they just released the guidelines on Monday. Mm -hmm. So it's mm -hmm. looking like it's going to be less cumbersome. Um, they're talking about even if the landlord doesn't agree that the tenant can get the money and pay the landlord. So last time around, you had to vote. And right. so this time, um, they're doing self-certifications for loss of income for tenants because one of the big factors last time was like you had to prove a 30% loss of income. So oh, wow. think about it. The, yeah. the, the pandemic started in March. You lost your job or you got laid off or whatever happened. This money didn't become available to like June, July, summer. So you, you had that big chunk of time where you were not working and then they wanted you to prove all the documentation. And, and we had people saying like, I worked at a restaurant that closed, like what, I can't get a letter from anybody. Like, where do I get it? No. You know, looking from bank statements or check stubs from six months prior just wasn't happening. So I forget, wasn't it like, uh, like, I forget how much money was left on the table last time, but it was a huge, and here's like, here's the big surprise to me. Like, this is crazy to me. They're creating all these systems to distribute mm -hmm. this money, give a universal income to people. Like you have our, you have our tax records, you know what people are earning, get a cutoff, give everybody $2,000 a month. If they don't pay their rent and they get eviction gets filed, you know they got the money and that's a different conversation. But why create these complicated bureaucratic systems to get people's needs met? People are suffering. I was looking at um, something from 2008 when we had the big financial crisis. Mm -hmm. And you think about it, bankers and the banks got bailed out, people of right color. Away. People in poverty got nothing. So, you know, here we are again with the people in power making the policies, making it difficult. And, you know, at, like as a system, this is always how it's been. We're so, and we, not we, they are so scared of the one person that doesn't deserve it sneaking through and getting what they, you know, when they don't really need it, that we exclude everybody. Like for Pete's sakes, come on. Yeah. Because the, the eviction or just the poverty rate pre-pandemic was tilted. It's landed in such a way that it, it just, it literally breaks my heart to think of folks not having enough to do their basics. Then a pandemic comes. And they already have jobs where they're not getting paid a living wage. Uh, so now <laughs> you lose that job. And then right around the holidays, it's it's been such a heartbreaking, eye-opening experience to see the way the systems are intertwined. Because again, being unhoused is a small piece of a larger mm -hmm. issue. Uh, Jeez, Jen. I, I... Something's got to give. Like, I feel like we're at a breaking point. And e even prior to this, you know, I came to friends and I'm like, oh, we're paying rental. You know, we do prevention programs where we, we were paying rental subsidies prior to the pandemic. And, I, you know, I'm thinking about it. I'm like, you know, we're just helping people survive. They're not thriving. They're still barely getting by. You know, they're not able to save and get their kid, you know, uh, you know, pass on the wealth. They're not, you know, yeah. they're still struggling to get their kids into college. They're not owning their homes. They're not, we're, we're paying landlords, we're paying utility companies, but that's all we're really doing. Like how we, people 
our community needs to thrive. Everybody deserves that. Everyone. And, and that, that's just, it's mind blowing to me. It really, it really is. And I think that, you know, we saw people kind of just barely keeping their heads above water. Most of our neighbors, I think are like in the 50 to 70% rent burdened, which means they're paying 50 to 70% of their income just towards their rent pre pandemic. So they were just, they weren't even, you know, barely and now they're drowning they're they're submerged they're underwater um and i don't know how they're gonna get out and i don't think people realize that 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 component of being rent burdened what that means Mm -hmm. how significant that is so even if someone did have a house that they quote unquote could afford after the pandemic they lost the ability just like that imagine 70% 70% of your income mm-hmm. goes to just simply paying your rent. Yep. You're one emergency away from one. missing, you know, a, a car breaking down, missing a day because you don't feel well. And, you know, and then on top of jobs, like we had childcare and schools, like I don't think anybody realized the, the, the role that schools fill in families mm-hmm. who are struggling more than than during this time. That you know, it, it's just I I were I'm on the Women's Commission in Chester County too, and we were just looking at the number of job losses and disproportionately to women who have had to homeschool and and do all of those things and not have the flexibility of an employer who could understand you know those competing needs. And dads too. I mean, you have young kids sure. as well, and trying to to make it all work. Sure, but because schools didn't work, I know when the pandemic hit and kids began to go quote unquote virtual, the big concern was kids not having food because mm-hmm. schools, yeah. for many people, was a source of at least breakfast, at least lunch, potentially a snack. Mm-hmm. But also, it was a form of childcare yeah. that allowed parents to go to work from those school hours, and you yeah. take that away. Huge. Yep. But now we're arguing about fifteen dollars as a minimum wage. Yeah. You know, we're yeah. getting caught up in that type of foolishness. Yeah. So, I, 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 what keeps you motivated from doing? in doing this work because as someone who has been doing this work for a short time in this capacity it makes me angry some days it mm-hmm. takes literally takes the breath away from me at moments when i see the difficulties and the the trauma that people are experiencing mm-hmm. uh, the fact that people literally jen want to be better to be out of the situations they are but there's no resources there's no other agencies who are trauma informed. There's a a, mm-hmm. a lack of competent workers who are not burnt out, who haven't been 15, 20 years in social work field in one department. So they have that bitter taste in their mouth. What keeps you going? What keeps you motivated and filled with hope? Great question. I mean, it is, you know, my inherent belief that every single person that we're connected, like that we are connected 
and none of us are well until all of us are well. If, you know, I can't thrive unless my brothers and sisters are thriving. Um, and I think I, you know, I just, I have always felt a sense of responsibility to be able to use my voice and to be a bridge. Um, I think part of our work now is like, it shouldn't have to be me. Like it shouldn't, and that's kind of how I felt in probation too. Like I, it, it, we need to change the systems completely. So it doesn't take one person with one voice who has access, mm. right? That like someone will open their door for me to tell them this and hear it from me. No, it, it just needs to be across the board. So fighting for that. Um, I'm married to a brown man. My kids are brown. So we've been personally impacted by this as well. Um, you know, my husband and I, when we first got married, were discriminated against in housing. Um, yeah, yeah, very blatantly. So um, I think just no, you know, on on the days where I am frustrated, and I do, I get angry, I rail, it's kind of fuel for me sometimes. But I really think about the individual people that are behind all of this that are the ones suffering. I keep a little box and I'll show it to you sometimes on my desk. And I will, you know, if, if somebody writes me a note, I have a, a box going back 30 years of just little mm. notes and even obituaries of, of people I served that passed sure. away sure. that maybe. And that is like my, my belief in, in humanity and in every person deserving. This is what keeps me going. Okay. That's good, but it's another big one because burnout is uh -huh. so incredibly easy. It doesn't take long. There's no specific time frame. It looks different for everybody. What do you do for self-care? How do you, as someone who's not only a in the field do the work, but you're the executive director, we're not even going to mention the fact that this is a nonprofit and you have to deal with a whole board who is transitioning along with everybody else from one model, integrating into a trauma for how, how do you protect yourself and provide yourself with a level of self-care? So, I mean, I have been doing therapy for years, so I continue that it's turned into a lot of coaching and, you know, sure. and, once a month at this point, but you know, it's kind of my space to, um, you know, to get that self care. I have rituals in the morning that I try to follow. Um, I don't judge myself if I don't like, I, I, I think in this position more so I've really like, I'm just listening to my intuition. I'm trying to go internal and saying, what does my body need today? You know, if I don't want to get up at 630 in the morning and take a walk in nature, I'm not going to. But if that's my ritual today, it is. Um, but really listening to podcasts of inspirational people. Uh, I read poetry every morning. I light a candle every morning and pick a person to send love to mm -hmm. um, and just really kind of ease into my day. Um and then go full force all day. And then, you know, it's so funny. Ava, Ava said this to me last week, we were interviewing for staff attorney. And I've said this to all of you, like, you're not going to get emails from me after 5pm or on weekends, unless it's an emergency, because we need to shut down and we need to yeah, recharge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that doesn't mean that sometimes I'm not catching up and doing things. I just delay send. But Ava said, Oh, you'll only get an email from Jen after five. If it's someone scamming for you to buy eBay. Oh, cars. Every time. Yeah, they love you for 
some reason. I don't know what that's all about. Yeah, but really just shutting down at the end of the day, you know, and closing my day and, and you know, spending time with family. You know, I have a little 16-month-old granddaughter that I adore. So, and nature. I'm a big, you know, just standing outside, breathing air is uh, self-care to me. So as we begin to wrap it up, just I really want to leave the listeners, the folks that who listen to our podcast, who come here to hang out, to get great information such as this with some jewels, some gems, some knowledge, something to help funnel them or keep them aware of what's taking place. Because I know evictions is not everybody's plight. It's, mm-hmm. it's not everybody's issue. What are some things that you would want people to know about evictions, about the unhoused, anything that's on your heart? You know, I think that, I, you know, the one thing we didn't talk about is our reentry housing as well. So, mm. you know, providing opportunities, connecting people in community is what this is about. So, you know, reach out to your neighbor, you know, connect with the people around you. I think we've become so disconnected as communities in like in our little bubbles, in our homes, with our families. And it really is those connections around us in, you know, in that our ecosystem of our little house in our neighborhood and our block and our city and our county that are going to help people thrive and don't underestimate what you can do for others. You know, I think that, uh, you know, kindness goes a long way and caring and uh, open your eyes. Like the time for tinkering is over. We've got to stop pretending this crap isn't happening. And, you know, the pandemic with everything that we have seen on the social Mm. justice, housing has been at the forefront. Racism has been at the forefront. Criminal justice has been at the forefront. Like we need to wake up and we need to have these tough conversations and we've got to face the reality that people are people in this country, in this county, are mm. suffering, and it there is no reason for it. It's it's a, it's almost criminal to me it that we allow this to happen in our society. That's awesome, Jennifer Lopez, Executive Director of the Friends Association. Thank you, my friend, for coming through and spending some time with us. Uh, this was an awesome conversation. Uh, Thank you. It folks, went fast. <laughs> it, did, it did go kind of quick, didn't it? Yeah. But it always seems to go that way. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in to the In the Black podcast. I am your boy, Elgin Bailey. As always, informed, intelligent, in the black. Till next time. This is, this is the In the Black Podcast. In the Black, bro. Hands <laughs> down, one of the best podcasts I ever heard, though. I like y'all. what up? I heard a black up here, Bretchen. Listen. Oh. In the Black Podcast, like y'all lad, it's all facts. You don't like that, the fall back. In the Black Podcast, don't talk trash. Switch fast if you ain't raw, you go whack. It forms intelligent elements, always relevant. Not for the weak and delicate. This is eloquent excellence. We are setting the precedence. Rest of them are excrement. In the Black Podcast, the truth like the testament. Don't know.
Black up Hebrew, man a specialist So what the podcast broadcast Can't mess with this Like said them a cheat Who no do it so effortless I listen them I learn When them listen them I benefit Report and current event Everything that is prevalent This is so exquisite A scientific experiment Giving you the news Not views without evidence Telling you the truth Sentiments without embellishments Relax, these are the facts Bringing them to your residence In your house or your tenement Listen to hear intelligence Body filled with melanin Power that's so unsettling Bright in the stars Bringing some light back to the desolate In the black podcast That your land is all facts You don't like that The four facts In the black podcast They want to Look at what's black in the black podcast, and your land is all facts. You don't like that, they fall back. In the black podcast, we all lost. They will let them count on them to come true. Just like that, though. Yeah, man, that's so much. 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 Yeah, man, that's